What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Not Your Normal Horror. I'm Kim. And it's Jay. And we have a special guest sitting in who's going to probably... She's supposed to just listen, but... We have an eavesdropper with us tonight. She's supposed to just listen, but you know her. She's got she's got something to say about everything. Uh, it's who? Who are you? Alyssa. Alyssa's here. So... Um, yeah, sorry we didn't get an episode out earlier this week. It's just things didn't work out. So we're here now. You get an episode now. And what's it about? Um, well, I just literally right before I pushed record, made the decision to go with the deathbed confessions that I talked about in the last one. Ooh, deathbed confessions. Yep. So I went on to just lots of different websites to find some some what I thought were pretty good ones. So that's what we're gonna do. What would your deathbed deathbed confession be? I don't have anything to confess right now, so an answer. I got nothing. What about you, Jay? Same answer. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just so most of these um I'm gonna be reading as like the person telling the story. Are you going to use their voice? No, obviously uh-huh. not, because I don't know what these people sound like. But you can like um, some of them are like quotes of like I did this or I heard this or this person I said this it. to me. Improv was the word I was looking for. And then some of them are just stories, kind of. Gotcha. So let's kick it right off. Let's kick it with the first one. My mom had a patient who was terminal and confessed to killing his twin brother in Vietnam so he could blame the death on the war, steal his identity, and then return to the U.S. to be his brother's to be with his brother's wife. The wife had passed away years earlier and the patient's children blamed the confession on dementia until after his passing. But as it turns out, the patient's daughter ended up finding a handwritten confession from decades ago stuffed in an old Bible. That's fucked up. That is. That's so fucked up. All right. Next one is, I had a patient who was an 86-year-old woman who put a bunch of crosses around the room. I had to ask her to take them down due to the inability to create the care she needed. She insisted they all stay up because, quote, it was one cross for each soul she took, end quote. Whoa. If that's true, she took 14 souls. What the hell? What you doing with them souls, old lady? How are you taking them? Keep them all bottled up in a soul keeper? All right. My dad grew up thinking his mom committed suicide when he was 10. When my grandfather passed away about a decade ago, he confessed to my dad on his deathbed that he had actually killed my grandmother. Unreal. See, like, something like that, I don't even know if I... Like, you kept it a secret that... You know what I mean? Now you're just like... So maybe, like, the big thing is they can't move on until their conscience is clean. And their conscience can't be clean unless they confess to the things they've done. True. Because you know how, like, some people, like, when they're, like, dying, won't die until they've seen a certain member of their family. Like, a one person they're waiting for. And then that person comes and it's just like, they're gone. Yeah. So maybe that's kind of how it is. Okay. Took care of a World War II veteran with dementia. He would say the number 22 over and over, and the family never knew the significance of it. The number didn't line up with any significant events or dates that that they were aware of. 
The day before he died, his mental state became incredibly clear, and he started telling the staff, 22 men. I killed 22 men over there. Poor guy. He lived with that anguish for 50-plus years. Wow. I bet that happens a lot. Where did he kill these men at? It was in, in World War II. Oh, I'm sure. What are you saying? Alyssa's whispering under her breath. It wasn't that over 100 years ago, World War Two. Over 100 years ago? No, not quite. Okay. Had an elderly woman who had gone downhill and was on her deathbed for about a week. She kept asking me to read the Bible to her, and as soon as I would, as soon as I would start, she would scream that he was coming to get her, that he was waiting right behind me. Very unnerving at 3 a.m. Finally, I asked her who was coming to get her, and she replied with, the devil's coming for me because I let my husband rape our kids and did nothing. Ugh. Good for the devil. Yes, you get that bitch. It. Hurry up, devil. Fuck that woman. Let's go, Beelzebub's. Get a move on. I've been a nurse for six years. A year or two before I started, my floor housed a convicted child rapist and murderer. Sent to us from prison, dying of cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry. One of my coworkers told me about how the patient described his child victims hovering outside the windows, waiting for him to die so they could drag him to hell. We were on the 10th floor at that time. I asked my coworker if he thought the children were hallucinations. He's one of the smartest, most perceptive people I know. He said he thought there was a good chance that what the patient saw was real. What is a patient? Mm. Freddy Krueger? <laughs> a real like Freddy Krueger? It sounds like <coughs> Or like one of a real life William Afton. Okay, so this is one. This is like not in an account, like a personal, like a first person mm -hmm. account. This is just a, a kind of story. The few people in Shawnee, Oklahoma, who knew the couple that called themselves James Anderson and Dorothy Powers, said that they were quiet and humble. They moved to the city in the late 1970s, and both were deeply religious. They were active in their church, and James was the leader of a Bible study. In 2009, James was in the hospital because he suffered two serious strokes. He told the police that his real name was James Brewer. He had been on the run since 1977 after skipping bail for murdering his neighbor, 20-year-old Jimmy Carroll, in Howenwald, Tennessee. Howenwald. I don't know. Tennessee. It was in Tennessee. It's somewhere in Tennessee. He thought that Carroll was trying to seduce his wife, so he shot him twice, killing him. It turned out that Brewer didn't die from the strokes. He recovered and turned himself into the police in that place in Tennessee. Hohenwald. Hohenwald. H-Town. H-Town, Tennessee. H-Wald. The district attorney chose not to go to trial because of Brewer's physical condition. So this dude's like, I'm dying here. I'm going to tell you what happened. And then, boom, doesn't die. Not dying. Recovers from the strokes. and Wow. Still lucked out, though. In November 1986, 76-year-old Alice Mock of Middletown, Delaware, asked her neighbor to come over. Mock was dying, and she had to be honest with someone before she departed this world. She said that in 1975, she was drinking with a man named Wayman Camille Jr. Wayman? Wayman. Not like Raymond, just no, Wayman. No, Wayman. Okay. It's spelled Wayman, like Wayman. Oh, okay. Wayman Camille Jr. And she invited him back to her apartment. He agreed and then went back to her place and drank some more. 
When Camille passed out, Mock stole some money from him, but she realized that if he woke up and found the money gone, he'd know that she'd stolen it. She was also worried that her landlord would find her, a white woman, in bed with an African-American man and throw her out. So to cover up the theft and save herself from being evicted, she called the police and said that Camille had raped and robbed her. Camille was arrested and charged for sexual, with sexual assault. The district attorney gave him a choice. He could go to trial and risk getting 45 years in prison or plead guilty and get 15 years. Camille ended up choosing to plead guilty, even though he was completely innocent. Mock died several days after making the confession and the neighbor went to the police. In June 18, 1986, Camille was released after spending nearly 12 years in prison. Unreal. Also, fuck her. That's wow. just fucked up. No shit. So fucked up. On September 10th, 1994, there was a gang-related shooting outside of a party in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Several people at the party were members of the gang, the Crips. 19-year-old Karen Summers a mother of a four-month-old child, was killed in the shooting. She was shot with a Lorsen pistol, and the shooters fled in a maroon Ford Taurus. A few days later, the police interviewed Michael Lee Wilson, who was a member of the Bloods, the rival of the Crips. Yeah, we all know that. <laughs> Three days before the shooting that killed Summers, he had been shot in the leg by a Crip. He also owned a Lorsen pistol and had access to a maroon Taurus. Amazingly, even though he had motive, access to the type of gun used in the shooting, and access to a car that matched the description of the getaway car, they didn't arrest him. Instead, they arrested two 17-year-old boys, DeMarcho Carpenter and Malcolm Scott. Two eyewitnesses said they were at the shooting. Even though the witness statements contradicted each other, <coughs> sorry, and there was absolutely no physical evidence tying Carpenter and Scott to the shooting, they were found guilty. They were both sentenced to life plus an additional 170 years in prison. Wilson, meanwhile, was eventually arrested for beating a convenience store clerk to death with, the, with a baseball bat in February 1995 and sentenced to death. Two days before he was executed in January 2014, Wilson recorded an interview with the Oklahoma Innocence Project. In the interview, he confessed to being involved in the killing that in the shooting that killed Karen Summers and that Carpenter and Scott had nothing to do with it. Wilson was executed on January 9th, 2014. The interview was entered into evidence, and on May 9th, 2016, Carpenter and Scott were released from prison after spending 20 years behind bars. That's crazy. So the, the car the two teenage boys drove, drive, kind of looked like the getaway car, too. They didn't say anything about the boys having a car. Yeah, but then how would they be on the... Crooked cops. It was two eyewitnesses told the cops that they were the boys were at the shooting. Yeah, and even I, though they weren't. Well, that sucks. And also, I keep thinking about this every time I look at uh, Jason's mask. The up part kind of looks like a U. <laughs> She's looking at a rug. We have a rug on our wall. I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but in our bedroom we have a rug on our wall that has. Michael, Freddie, Leatherface, and Jason. And so she's just staring at that the whole time. I know. I, I'm trying to keep back my laughs, but I'm silently giggling. Oh, boy. In February 2014, a woman named Pam Reinhardt went to the police station in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, with a disturbing story. She said that for the past eight months, she had been taking care of her ailing uncle, Larry Sherrard. 
As he was nearing the end of his life, Sherard said to Reinhardt, I don't want to go to hell. He then proceeded to tell her that in the 1980s, he shot a man in the head, wrapped him up in a carpet, and then dumped the body in a cave. But that wasn't all. He said that in the 1990s, he shot another man. This one he buried. Sherard didn't say who his victims were, but he did say that they were both killed because they cheated him in a drug deal. The same afternoon that Sherard went into a coma, he died. The police looked into their cold cases and found a case that was similar to the first murder that Sherard described. In July 1989, Spelunkers found a body at the bottom of a cave with a bullet hole in its skull. He was identified as Thomas Jones Jr. The police went to the area where Sherard said the second body was buried. They found bone fragments and pieces of clothing. That victim has never been identified. How old was this uncle? I don't know. Because if he shot something, some two people in 1902. 19. 1902. No, not 1902. It was the 1980s. 1980s. He has to be at least. He's dead. Watch it. We were both yeah. born in the 80s. Yeah. Darn, how old? How old? 30-something. <laughs> I almost got myself... You almost got yourself grounded. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the evening of January 11th, 1867, a teenage boy found the bloody body of his 18-year-old sister, Christine Kett, in their Dayton, Ohio home. He went and got the neighbors, and the police were notified. Christine's body was in the kitchen doorway that led to the cellar. Her lower body was in the kitchen, and her upper body was at the top of the stairway. Her head had sustained several blows with a sharp object, like a hatchet or an axe. There was also a pistol found near her body, and Christine had gunpowder on her finger and face, but it didn't appear that a bullet had been fired. A short time later, Christine's mother, who was also named Christine, came home and found a group of people in her house, in front of her house. She became hysterical when they informed her that her daughter had died. Over the years... Mrs. Mrs. Kett accused many people of murdering her daughter, and the police arrested several men. One suspect was Christine's brother, since he found the body, and it was his gun found near her. However, no one could be tied to the crime scene, so no one was ever formally charged. The police finally concluded that Christine accidentally shot herself after she tripped while carrying the pistol. Seventeen years after the murder, Mrs. Kett was bedridden with inflamed bowels and was nearing death. She had her son come to her bedside, and she told him that she had killed Christine. On the day that she, had di- that she died, Christine was supposed to come home at noon to make dinner. She was a few hours late, and Mrs. Kett snapped. She grabbed an axe, and as Christine ran towards the cellar, Mrs. Kett struck her in the head. <clears throat> Mrs. Kett then grabbed the gun and the flask with the gunpowder. She smeared the powder on Christine's finger and her cheek and planted the gun. She then went out to the market and returned after she knew her son would find the body. Mrs. Kett asked asked her son to keep it a secret until he was on his deathbed, and he agreed. Mrs. Kett died hours later after suffering a stroke. Her son didn't wait until his deathbed to reveal her secret. Instead, he told a reporter the story shortly after his mother passed away. Oh, that's... Did he cross his fingers or something? Well, she's dead. What's what's she going to do? Drag him to heck. Okay. That's crazy. Okay, this one says, 
This was related to me by my mother before her passing. <clears throat> my great uncle admitted that he had killed his first wife by beating her to death with a bowling ball because he found her molesting their neighbor's son when she, he was five years old. I can barely pick up a bowling ball, bowling ball to bowl. Let alone pick it up and beat somebody with it. Well, on that stage, I think you could do anything. In that, like, state of mind. Yeah. This is when he lived in Ireland, and a few years later, he moved to America, met another woman, and lived his life happily. Had a number of kids and grandkids. It put most of the family into shock, as my great-uncle was one of the most nonviolent people you would ever meet. No explanation on how he got away with it, or any more than that. He died, like, three minutes later. Shook my family up for a while. Bitch had it coming. Yeah. <clears throat> my mother-in-law worked at a nursing home, so she had seen death. But one stuck with her. A patient knew that he or she was near death and called out for someone, anyone, to listen. So she listened. The patient said that when they were young, their father had been out drinking with some friends, and on the way home, he had hit a little girl. Gave very specific details about where and when it happened. The girl was maybe three years old. Her father and his friends buried the little girl under the porch steps and never spoke of it again. The person had lived with the guilt of keeping it a secret and felt horrible that the little girl's family would never know what had happened. They had to let someone else know. I'd like a follow up on that. Like, did yeah, somebody right? go find the body and tell that's, the family? That's what I was hoping that would hear. Well, they didn't go into that, so. And I, I, don't, I mean, that would take some serious research to figure that one out. Yeah. Because it's like no information where, when, nothing. In 2009, Nashville prison inmate James Washington suffered a heart attack or a seizure attack, according to some outlets. An experience that prompted him to confess, <clears throat> prompted him to confess to the slaying of Joyce Goodner in 1995. Washington, in prison for a second-degree murder conviction from 2006, thought he was at the end. Either in an attempt to find absolution or as an act of pure desperation, Washington told a prison guard that he ended Goodner. <clears throat> a woman that had been found brutally slain in Nashville, Tennessee, 17 years earlier. Washington recovered from his ailment and tried to take back his confession, claiming he was hallucinating. He was put on trial, where it came out that Washington had been in a relationship with Goodner. After a three-day trial, Washington was convicted and sentenced to life without, in prison without parole. Another one of those... Thought he was dying. Yeah, right. Confessed something. No, nope, like, oh, didn't die. Uh -oh. oh, fuck. Uh, let me, uh, I was just joking. Doesn't work like that. What a schmuck. All right, this one sucks so bad. So bad. In 1957, four Ku Klux Klan members grabbed truck driver Willie Edwards Jr. and forced him to jump off the Tyler Goodwin Bridge near Montgomery, Alabama. Edwards, only 25 at the time, had stopped for something to drink on the way back from a delivery when he was forced out of his truck at gunpoint and into their car. The Ku Klux Klan members claimed Edwards had, quote, offended a white woman, end quote, and beat him as they drove to the bridge high above the Alabama River. Once they arrived at their destination, they made Edwards get out of the car and told him to jump or to be shot or be shot. Edwards jumped 125 feet. He did not survive. One of the four men that took part, Raymond Britt, confessed to the crime in 1976. He was granted immunity in exchange for his testimony against his three companions, Sonny Kyle Livingston, 
Henry Alexander, and James York. None of the men were ever convicted, however, and the charges against them were thrown out not once, but twice. Alexander, according to his widow Diane, finally admitted to her that he'd been one of the men who forced Edwards to jump. According to Diane, her husband not only played a part in the slaying, but was the one who falsely identified him as the man that, quote, offended a white woman, prompting the action against him. Alexander told his wife, I didn't, quote, I didn't think he would jump. If he'd have run, they would never, they would never have shot him, end quote. Alexander was remorseful and just before he died said, quote, I had no business hating the blacks. They've never done anything to me, end quote. Well, duh. As is the fucking case with all racists. No need to hate them. They, what are they doing to you? Absolutely right. fucking nothing. <sighs> that one just makes me sick. Okay. In 1975, Joan Harrison was raped and fatally beaten in Preston, England. Harrison was the mother of two children and worked as a sex worker. Her body was found in a garage and the acts were attributed to the Yorkshire Ripper, later identified as Peter Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe was convicted of slaying 13 women between 1976 and 1981. He did not do the same to Harrison, however. In 2008, convicted sex offender Christopher Smith was arrested for a DUI offense. From that arrest, I'm sorry, yeah, from that arrest, authorities were able to collect DNA evidence that later matched DNA from Harrison's body. In the interim, Smith passed from lung cancer, but not before scrawling out a confession of sorts. The note discovered by police after Smith's passing read, quote, I don't know if I should read it exactly how it was or how it's supposed to be, because he's got, like, misspelled words and, like, oh, words that... one of them. <clears throat> one of All right, quote, to however it concerns, I would like to put the record straight. I can't go on with the guilt. I have lived with it for over 20 years. I am truly sorry for all the pain I have caused to anyone. Please believe me when I say I am sorry. I love my grandkids and my daughter. I cannot go back to prison anymore. Please, God, help my family who I worship. I have been out of trouble for over 20 years, so please, gold, help me. I am so sorry. God forgive me. I love you all forever. End quote. After the DNA match was confirmed, police took this note as a confession. Ooh. From his hospice bed in London... Roy Heath told authorities that he had slain Mohammed Taki, wrapped him in a blanket, and burned him under, I'm sorry, and buried him under his patio. Taki, an Iraqi national, was 53, but little is known about what led to his end. When Heath confessed to the brutal crime in 2010, he told them that he'd choked Taki. Heath passed 13 days later, so authorities were unable to follow up with him, although Heath supposedly explained his motive beforehand. Investigators also discovered that Heath had ties to gangster Reggie Cray and his brother Ronnie. Heath had been accused of slaying a business associate in 1997, but nothing ever came of the case. Police arrested three additional suspects after Heath's confession, but no charges were ever filed. Crazy how many people get away with murder. Mm -hmm. It's like, just as we think, all these people gone away with murder their whole life. Well, there's a quote, like a, a statistic, which I, I mean, I've just seen it in passing. I never looked into it. 
But, like, supposedly you walk by, like, 12 serial killers in your life. Not serial killers, but at least 12 people or something like that, I think, is the number. You've walked by a certain number of people that have killed somebody in your lifetime. And, like, you just never know. Because they just get away with it. Well, don't kill me, please. Thank you for not killing me. Yeah. I need a t- We need to make t-shirts and say that. Thank you for yeah, not right. killing me. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Minnesota police in the 1980s were on the hunt for a serial killer who targeted young women in the, from the Twin Cities. The killer had a habit of making anonymous calls where he would taunt police in a high-pitched voice, earning him the moniker, the weepy-voiced killer. The killer's modus operandi was to injure or kill these young women before calling the police, alerting them to the crimes that had taken place. The killer would usually lure them into a car, offering them a ride before taking them to a secluded location and killing them in a variety of ways. One victim, Kimberly Compton, was stabbed 61 times with a nice pig. Yeah. Another, Karen Potak, was bludgeoned with a tire, a tire iron. Murder weapons also ranged wildly from screwdrivers, blunt objects like tire irons, and ice picks. The case would go unsolved until Paul Michael Stefani, a devout Catholic, confessed to the murders after being diagnosed with terminal cancer. And we pl- I'm pretty sure in our Disturbing Phone Calls episode... Which is our top episode, by the way. It's the most downloaded episode we have. Anyways, I have to do another one. So we played his calls. Do you remember Did him? We, I don't remember. Oh, jeez. I'm pretty sure we covered him. Because he would call the police after he killed them. And he would cry. Yes, he did. Oh, okay. You guys did. Because I thought so. Because I, I remember listening to it, to it on the way to school. <laughs> it would be cool if they played podcasts on the um, bus. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. You don't ride a bus anyway. I know. But next year, I hope they do. It would be fun. We'll have to get our podcast in the school buses. (laughs) Yeah, that'll happen. Just for, like, high schoolers. The confession in 2018 of a terminally ill elderly New Zealand resident, known only as Sean, sparked an ongoing ethical debate as to whether doctors are bound by client-patient confidentiality when it comes to serious crimes, even those taking place more than 50 years prior to the confession. Sean confessed to having fallen in with the wrong crowd shortly after leaving school. He became a contract killer, often looking into the eyes of his victims and watching them struggle and plead for their lives before pulling the trigger. Sean claimed that he had lived with the guilt all his life and tried his best to make up for it by donating to charities, volunteering for good causes, and taking in what he described as lost souls. None of that helped ease his guilt. His doctors uh, urged Sean to write a letter and send it to the police before he passed. But so far, his doctors are the only ones who know the details of his crimes. But thanks to a victim advocacy group who learned of the confession and the hospital's decision to withhold that information, police are finally closing in on the truth. So, Dr. Patient Confidentiality? Yeah, I mean, I think that should only apply when it comes to medical issues, not like you got lawyer client uh, confidentiality but if i confess something to my doctor of a crime i did i feel like you should have full rights to go tell the police Uh, can i say the one the only one i know it's two different people that i heard of i watched this never mind but um in the case of db cooper which i'm kind of familiar with that case i actually want to 
try to figure out who it was. <laughs> I forgot the two people who said it, but something, but they, but while they were on their deathbed, they said, I'm Dan Cooper. It was two different people. One of the men told his wife to come here and whispered into his wife's ear, I'm Dan Cooper. And the other guy, um, I didn't, I don't think it's really a confession, but I don't know if he said it or not, but, and this is what I put. After she watched a show, I forgot what the show was, the sister thought that her brother was definitely Dan Cooper. That's all I have to say. Huh? All right. <laughs> you're into, the, you're big into the D.B. Cooper, right? Mm-hmm. And you are too, so I think the two of you should do a podcast together, just dedicated to DB Cooper. Because I am, I'm not interested in that story at all. Like that just doesn't. Well, it really doesn't. I thought we did. I thought we. You, I think you did, and an unsolved, um, like unsolved crime story thing. Yeah, but I want to make one where it's only me and Jay talking about Dan Cooper. Y'all can do that. Coming soon to a podcast near you. Whatever ad says. The the murder of famed Hollywood director William Desmond Taylor shocked Tinseltown in the 1920s. He was arguably, at the time, the most famous director in town. His neighbor observed that his lights were still on upon returning to her bungalow late one night. Taylor was known for burning the midnight oil, so she thought nothing of it, retiring for the evening. Like smoking the... Devil's lettuce burning in midnight oil, or could be just like burning but oil. But I've literally never heard canister. anybody talk about smoking uh, pot that way. I don't go burn the midnight burning oil. Burning the midnight oil <laughs> is staying up late that I've ever heard of. So we just apparently. I don't think I ever knew what burning midnight oil meant. We definitely ran in different circles when we were younger. <laughs> Um, the next morning, she woke to a scream from Taylor's cook and valet, Henry Peavy. Quote, Mr. Taylor is dead. Mr. Taylor is dead. End quote. Peavy, who had arrived in the early morning hours to start work, shouted after finding Taylor dead on the floor with a gunshot wound in his back. Despite having a laundry list of potential suspects, including Taylor's wife and child, who he had abandoned during the gold rush, who also had zero idea as to where he had made off to until seeing him on the big screen one day. The case remained unsolved until 1964 when former silent film star Margaret Gibson confessed to the murder after suffering a heart attack. What is Gold Rush? Um, it was a thing back in the 20s when people like, migrated. Gold and- yeah, didn't they like migrate west to mm-hmm. like California and stuff? Looking for mm-hmm. gold? Something like that. I learned about it in school. I already learned about the Boston stuff. Why not learn about the gold rush? Well, I guess it's a different year. I don't know. In 1981, six-year-old Adam Walsh was abducted from the Sears department store at the Hollywood Mall. Six days later, his headless torso was discovered. And two weeks after that, his head would be found in a drainage, drainage canal alongside Highway 60. Adam's kidnapping and death remained a mystery for two years until career criminal Otis Toole, who was serving five consecutive life sentences, confessed to his niece, niece, niece. his niece, <laughs> oh my lord, <laughs> Tyson, <laughs> confessed to his niece on his deathbed that he had killed the child. Although Toole had been a suspect for some time, 
He'd made unreliable confessions for hundreds of murders before, including twice confessing to the murder of the Walsh boy, most of them having been determined to be lies. He would also recant his previous testimony about the Walsh boy. Walsh. Am I saying Wash? Walsh. No. The Walsh boy. After this third and final confession, the case was finally closed. In the aftermath of the murder, Walsh's father, John, went on to become an advocate for victims of violent crimes and hosted the long-running TV program, America's Most mm-hmm. Wanted. Yep. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, it was horrible. I did, I did a quick search because I just wanted to... I was just curious. I did a search on FBI's Most Wanted list. I don't remember any of the names. Okay. But... Oh. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. What? It's America's Most Wanted. Why not bring up the FBI Most Wanted? Okay. Harvey Richardson was a mild-mannered retired librarian from Wigan, England. Say that again. Wigan. 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 W-I-G-A-N. Wigan. Okay. I'm not going to I'm going to go with Wigan, England, when he died in a hospice at the age of 77. His life appeared to have been, well, unremarkable. He had no criminal convictions, and aside from failing his librarianship exams, those are a thing. I guess. I mean, I want to be studying it. He had had no major traumas in his life. So it was all the more remarkable that workmen, clearing clearing his home after his death, discovered a suitcase containing press cuttings about a murder that had taken place almost 40 years earlier. Along with the cuttings, they also found an antique pistol, an item of women's underwear, and a nine-page letter confessing to the murder of Lorraine Jacob. In the letter, he stated that Jacob had stolen a camera from his home a few weeks before her death. Police have speculated that the reason for this may have been that Richardson had taken pictures of her children without her consent. Yep, I'd steal it too. Yep. The confession went into great detail about the killing and included details that were not made public at the time. He wrote about how he had gone out to get drunk after failing his exams and then went out to meet some unnamed friends who police speculated were actually prostitutes. Richardson's coyness about his about this seems rather misplaced, given that he is writing a murder confession. Later that evening, he saw Lorraine Jacob walking home carrying bags of chips, and he began arguing with her about the camera. He then confessed to losing his temper and strangling her. Though the crime was not sexually motivated, Richardson removed his victim's underwear in a bid to make it seem so. He also took her purse containing a pawn ticket, which he never redeemed. Although over 100 police officers worked on the case, Richardson was never considered a suspect until, that is, his confession was discovered. Oh, I still can't get over the fact you gotta take an exam to become a librarian. Yeah, right? I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I guess you would have to be knowledgeable in, you know, yep. certain liter- literal literatures. I don't know. Yeah, I know my little sister won't be a librarian. She's too loud. True story. That's our last one, y'all. Look at me. It's going to be a long one. No, it's not. Vernon Seats died peacefully in his Milwaukee home at the age of 62. The end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I told you it wasn't long. After his death, his psychiatrist, carrying out her patient's wishes, went to the police and told them that Seats had confessed to shooting 14-year-old Jacob Wetterling 
and murdering two other unnamed boys. When police searched Seitz's home, they discovered a large amount of child pornography, a small collection of worn children's shoes, and a selection of newspaper clippings about Jacob's abduction. At the time of the disappearance, Seitz himself was only 12 years old. He told his psychiatrist that he had been abducted while on a family trip, and after being repeatedly assaulted by his captors, was ordered to kill Jacob Wetterling or be killed himself. In Seitz's basement, police found newly poured cement, bondage equipment, and, disturbingly, tufts of human hair. They hammered open the concrete but found nothing. Despite Seitz's clear obsession with the murder, they found nothing to link him to the crime. The child's mother did, however, identify Vernon Seitz as the man who, on two occasions, had gone to her home claiming to be a psychic. He offered to try to find her son and even gave her a painting that he had done of the child. Though Seitz was clearly disturbed, his confession turned out to be false. However, in 2015, police raided the home of Daniel Henrik, investigating allegations that he was in possession of child pornography. On searching the house, Henrik was found with a collection of newspaper cuttings and memorabilia relating to Jacob Wetterling's disappearance, much like the one that Vernon Seitz kept. Henrik confessed and made a plea deal in exchange for revealing the location of Jacob's remains. This time, the police had found the right man. Wow. And that was our deathbed confessions, y'all. They were fun. And soon, I'm probably going to send my... We're probably going to see FBI's Most Wanted. Because I currently have that on my search history. Okay. (laughs) I'm just curious. Okay, well, we're not curious, so we're going to go ahead and end the podcast. <laughs> um, we will uh, be back, I guess, sometime next week because I try to be consistent, but shit just happens. And yep. It doesn't always work out the way we want it to, so. Sometimes we get busy. <sighs> Sometimes we get busy. So, until then, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.